0: This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist, and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, I began self work more than four years ago now to really extend the walls of my practice to several groups of you, those of you who are very knowledgeable about therapeutic issues or emotional functioning or whatever, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're looking for answers or you're having a relationship problem that just isn't getting solved, but also very importantly to those of you who might say you'd never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough to listen to a psychologist, and I happen to be a psychologist, so we'll learn together today. I want to start out by saying this episode has to start with a trigger warning. Please, if you choose to listen, keep your own self-care in mind. We'll be talking about sexual abuse, and there are hotline numbers in the show notes, but here in the United States, it's 1-800-656-4673. Many years ago now, I had the honor of working with a woman, let's call her Janet, who may have faced one of the toughest tests of parenthood. She'd actually come into therapy for reasons that had to do with the consideration of a new relationship after divorce. But while we were working together, her older teenage daughter tearfully revealed that not only had she been sexually abused on multiple occasions as a child, but that her perpetrator had been her older brother. Janet's entire world came crashing down. She blamed herself. She should have known. How could something like that have gone on and she didn't sense it? What was she supposed to do now? Would her family, which it seemed as if it were so normal, ever be normal again? What was she supposed to tell the rest of the family? Or should she say anything? I'll tell you more about what did happen and how Janet's family very painfully and very carefully sewed the pieces of their lives back together. It was very hard work. So today on self work we're going to be talking about sexual abuse and specifically sibling sexual abuse. How is it different from the normal sexual curiosity between siblings? It's much more common than perhaps you can imagine and can do a lot of damage because of its complexity. I chose to write this post because of a very moving email I received, and we're actually going to use that as our listener email because I wanted to point out the language the writer used is very reflective of the confusion she feels about blame, responsibility, shame, and fear, and you can hear it firsthand. Today is again sponsored by BetterHelp, and here's another very short email I just received. Dr. Margaret I've been using BetterHelp for a few months now. It's such a great way to receive help for those of us who have a hard time reaching out. I love it. I probably never would have asked for help if online wasn't an option. I was really suffering. I'm so thankful for BetterHelp. It's been a great experience. I encourage anyone considering counseling to try it. I just thought I'd pass that on. So let's sit back and talk about sibling sexual abuse. But again, this could be very triggering. Please know that this episode is heavily annotated, meaning there are a whole bunch of links in the show notes for all the information given. So if you're hungry for more info, you can go there. But also there is international helpline information for anyone who might want it. But I'm not going to say 10 times you can find something in the notes. Just take that as a given and go look. If you're curious or you need to, today we're focusing on sexual abuse that occurs between siblings. Many parents don't suspect it, others sadly neglect the family so much they don't seem to care what their children are doing to one another. Many of my female and male patients over the years have been abused by a brother or sister. And all are highly confused. Are they to blame because they didn't tell a parent because they didn't stop it? Or what if they repeated or even forced sexual activity of some kind on others in the family? Or became promiscuous because often this kind of activity is passed on and can even become what's seen as normal. Before you begin to tell yourself this could only happen in certain kinds of families, whatever your own definition of that might be, let me stop you. Sexual abuse can occur anywhere, anytime, in any kind of family. And let's make sure we're also remembering that sexual abuse isn't about sex only. It's much more about control than anything else, feeling empowered. Let's first go over some facts. Sibling sexual abuse is underreported or never reported. Yet the rate at which children are being abused by their siblings is significantly higher than the rate at which children are being abused by adult family members. In fact, a study quite a while ago and I was a little disturbed by that, but it still found even in 2002 found that at least 2.3% of children have been victimized by a sibling, while only about 0.12% are abused by an adult family member. So that's double Research also suggests that sexualized behavior by perpetrators is likely to become more intrusive over time. So if we don't help these people, they may commit more sex crimes. Here's some more facts. Many children who reveal that they are being sexually abused by a sibling aren't believed. A 2012 study found that parents were much more likely to blame their child for the abuse or doubt the story altogether when the perpetrator was a minor. I had a young woman I'll never forget. She actually invited her mom to a session and went over with her her memories of telling her mom about the abuse. What did her mom do? She swore she never remembered the conversation. We'll talk about this kind of denial later. And of course, it's much more difficult when you realize the perpetrator is my own child. The average age of a juvenile sex offender is 15 years old. Usually the abuse involves the opposite sex, but not always. But one in eight juvenile offenders are under the age of 12. So there are the facts. Now let's talk about what sets the stage for this kind of sibling sexual abuse. Here are several factors. There's too much isolated responsibility, and that can lead to abuse of power. These children have not been taught how to really take responsibility or care for younger children, and they will take advantage of that. They'll boss them around, put them down, threaten them or hurt them. And sometimes that can lead to sexual abuse or greater potential for sexual abuse. Number two is they themselves have witnessed or experienced sexual abuse. Children who have been abused either by family members or by adults or older children sometimes react by becoming physically aggressive. They can also react by being very coaxing and manipulative and forcing younger children into that same kind of sexual behavior. This is called second-hand abuse, or it's also sometimes called being sexually reactive. Number three is an access to pornography. Parents who leave pornographic material where children can look at it risk having their children imitate adult behavior. What they see is what they do, or try to do. There can also be unsupervised access to the Internet, or even contact with adults or older teens who will prey on your children. The fourth continuing factor is neglect. Children who are neglect and left without adult supervision, they're just likely to engage in any kind of activity, but also sexual activity. Left on their own, they don't know what appropriate touch feels like. They've never experienced it in their families. And so, whether they're with other children, they're on their own, They're looking for that connection. They're looking for attention and comfort. And so, because this basic need is not getting met, it sets the stage for this to happen. I remember working with a woman who did not even remember her own sexual abuse by her brother until her child turned the age she was when it began happening. And she stated to me that her parents worked all the time. They never checked in with them. And her brother was left to, quote unquote, take care of her. And she used to dance for him in a red nightgown, and she looked at me with tears streaming down her face, and she said, how could I have done that? I was inviting what he did to me. And I said to her, the reason why you did that was because it felt like attention, it felt like kindness, and you didn't know the difference between what's appropriate, healthy, kindness, touch, whatever, and what is actually unhealthy. Next is lack of sexual education. They're not taught age-appropriate ways to channel their physical and sexual development. And so they're more likely to act it out with neighborhood kids or their younger brothers and sisters. And then there's inadequate socialization. They're children who aren't allowed to play with their peers. And a terrible sense of isolation, again, can make them very hungry for connection. One article suggested that often an older child so wanting to be included in a group would be egged on to have sex as a kind of initiation requirement. And sisters or brothers are the likely candidate for that. So those are reasons why it can occur. So what problems is a child left with? How might it affect their future? We're talking about the victims here right now. Here are four common things that happen. You can tend to objectify your body because... Your body was objectified, and that kind of dynamic now feels familiar. When your body and mind are seen as an object to be manipulated sexually, literally, you're seen and even you feel as if your perpetrator doesn't see you anymore, not little sister or little brother. They see body parts. They're all into an act of power over you. So you can continue using your body in this very objectified way, Sex is just a way of getting control or getting something you want and you use your body like an object to get that. You can continue this far too easily into adulthood. Let's face it, you may not even realize that healthier ways of developing relationships are even possible. Now this may be a little hard to understand, but sometimes what can happen with a victim of childhood sexual abuse is they're trying to heal their abuse and they do it in odd ways. For example, I had a patient who'd been abused and she was promiscuous, but she always had or thought she had extreme control over her sexual partners. This can also happen when the victim is still a child themselves, but are trying to heal from their own shame. Also, you have to understand that neglected and abused children, again, like we talked about, are wanting for kind touch for positive attention. And reaching out to others sexually can be seen as not only familiar, but at least a way to get some of that attention. But then if they're the perpetrator, even though that may seem odd, they're also trying to heal that hurt of being so manipulated and so used. We've talked about the Cartman Triangle before, and I will have that episode in your show notes The Cartman Triangle talks about when one person's been abused, they can take the triangulated roles of savior and perpetrator. So think of a triangle and think at one of the points there's victim, at one of the points there's savior, and at one of the points there's perpetrator. They will jump in between these three roles. It may feel like healing, like you're getting power from being the savior or the perpetrator, but you're still actually caught inside the trap of abuse think of it as sex being strongly paired with the intensity and emotional turbulence of abuse, then that can be what's sought or, again, very familiar. And so jumping around in those different roles keeps the chaos going, even though you're trying to heal. The third one is being sexually aroused by abusive behavior. You know, one of my most well-read posts on my website is entitled The Shame No One Talks About in Sexual Abuse. It's also listened to a lot here at Self Work as a podcast. Your body can often respond even when you're being sexually assaulted. It's built to do that. Arousal is part of what makes sex happen more easily and readily. But then some victims get sex and sexual abuse confused and begin to believe that abuse is a normal part of the sexual experience. So they seek this kind of abuse out. It can be very, very damaging. Victims are also very angry. Even if they push the anger out of their conscious awareness, it can come out in all kinds of ways, passive ways, subtle ways, and not so subtle ways, either in their friendships, relationships, or even in their parenting style. Maybe they decided no one will ever control me again, and thus sexual vulnerability is completely out of the question. Or they can develop what's called sexual anorexia, where the entire act of sex seems repulsive, even though they may engage in it or be obsessed about it. This was a term, sexual anorexia, created by Patrick Carnes, who has brought the world's attention to sexual addiction. So these people are angry. They may have low self-esteem, but they're also very angry. So if you're a parent listening to this, why might it be difficult to recognize sibling sexual abuse? in your own family. Certainly admitting it and not denying it can be hard, and I'm about to finish the story of Janet, and I will tell you what happened with her. But before we do that, I'd like you to listen to this very special message from BetterHelp about an offer they have for you. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self-Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You could have sessions via video, text, or phone, and I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, "'I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast.' Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe better help is your next step. Okay, now we're going to go back to recognizing sibling sexual abuse in your own family. Again, it can be hard. The important thing is to get help. So why are the reasons why parents don't see it happening? Remember, the victim may be too young to know it's even abuse. So she or he might not tell you. It's just something that happens in your family. It's what your brother does to you at night or your sister. If your older sibling is the babysitter, then you heard your parents tell them, now do what they say. So again, you don't recognize it and you wouldn't tell a parent. But you can begin to try to look for signs. Again, there's a distinction between sexual play that's normal and sexual activity that's not normal. We're going to talk about that in a second. Of course, the abuser may be enforcing secrecy by threatening to hurt the victim or even the parents. And of course, there's always shame, and especially if they experience pleasure while they're being abused, so the shame keeps them from talking to you about it. They also may not know how to talk about it. Remember the young woman who did try to tell her mother and her mother didn't remember? That happens. Then if you really see some of it, you may tell yourself it isn't happening because it's so hard for you to believe that one of your children could be sexually abusive, and this is denial. So let's go back to Janet, who I mentioned in the intro. She was told by her daughter that her son, multiple times, had sexually molested her when she was around 10 to 12. Then it stopped because he had left to go to college. What did Janet do? How did the family heal? First, she made sure to get her daughter, let's call her Carrie, in counseling. Carrie wasn't ready in any way to confront her brother. Then Janet went to the city where her son lived, let's call him Jason, and confronted him. He was first defensive, but they'd always had a good relationship. And after reassurance that he'd always be loved, he admitted the abuse to her. Not everything at first, but it was a start. Then she told Jason, who was 23 at the time, what would be expected of him. That he would get himself into therapy That he would not have any contact with Carrie until and if she was ready. That Janet wanted them to do therapy together because they were gonna have to work on their own relationship. And then somehow he was gonna have to tell his father, with the help of his therapist, about it. Now, his father had gone to prison for something I can't remember. So that was a little difficult, but he did do it. He did everything, in fact. It was very hard on Janet. She had nightmares. She felt like a complete failure. What had she done wrong with her son? Why wasn't she someone her daughter could talk to before? All of this had occurred, again, as her husband went to prison. And they were divorcing at the time all of this happened. And she realized she could well have been somewhat checked out. But again, we just listed all the reasons why sometimes you don't know. So Janet had much of her own work to do. And if memory serves, there were more than a couple of holidays and birthdays where only one child attended whatever celebration there was. They weren't ready to see one another for a long time, but eventually, and with the participation of both their therapists, they met. He apologized and didn't get defensive. He figured out why he would needed that kind of control, and she, on her part, began to forgive him. True trust would come much later, but with Janet loving them both, trying to keep her own fear and despair from controlling her actions. And with the help of a stepfather that came along who was kind and non-judgmental, the family was changed, but not lost. And the last I knew of the family, they were beginning to spend time together. Let's talk a little bit about that all sexual play is not abuse. Sexual play happens between children who have an ongoing mutually enjoyable play and or school friendship. Always the plays between children of similar size, age, and social and emotional development. It's lighthearted and spontaneous. The children may be giggling and having fun when you discover them. When adults set the limits, children are able to follow the rules. But there are also guidelines in the article by stopitnow.org that is in your show notes for when you can determine it's not healthy behavior. And let's clear up one more fact. It is wrong to believe that all victims of sexual abuse become abusers themselves. In fact, that's far from the truth. Many are horrified by what happened to them and can even become hypervigilant for their own children's safety. Some recognize that they are providing a safe home and try to stay a little bit more rational about their own kids. But many, many people who are abused do not abuse. In fact, here's a quote from a study on teenage boy sexual offenders. The message here is that sexual victimization alone is not sufficient to suggest a boy is likely to grow up to become a sex offender. But our study does show that abused boys who grow up in families where they are exposed to a great deal of violence or neglect are at a particular risk. Remember again, sexual abuse is much more about getting control and feeling powerful than it is about sex. So when you're being abused... In any way, it can heighten your potential to sexually abuse. I know this is a very difficult topic. I felt it very important, and I'll tell you why. Because of our listener email, and it's coming up next. So for our listener email today, I wanted to take a recent email I received about this very same kind of trauma and let you hear the language someone uses to describe what went on and how you can begin to see their own shame. I'm actually going to have this conversation in the show notes of this email because I have bolded certain parts so that it's very clear to you what I'm talking about. She writes, What do you do if you're carrying the guilt and shame of being sexually abused as a child, but also the guilt of taking part in the abuse? My abuse started, bold, when I was probably two years old, by my sisters and cousins who were all older than me. Then I was, and this is bolded, taught to do things as a child. And my first and only sexual experiences were us kids doing sexual acts to each other. This went on until I was about 11 or 12. Bolded, family members were involved, and no one talks about it to this day, but I suffer mentally with it. I feel like it was my fault. Mostly, bold, because my sisters, the two who abused me, would say this to me, that I didn't speak up. And, bold, when I was seven, I was raped by a male family friend. I never told. Now, as an almost 40-year-old woman, I still, bold, feel ashamed, like someone should have stopped it. I could have bolded the whole paragraph, but I only bolded the parts that screamed irrational thinking, shame, confusion, fear, more shame, blame, and defensiveness of the other family members. Let's go back to the first one. She was two years old when it began. Think of a two year old, you know, and think about what they're normally learning. What if it was how to do a sexual act? They would think was fun or some form of play. As long as it didn't physically hurt nothing in their gut would be going off. Then she says, and I was taught. Now, I know I did everything my brothers told me or taught me to do to try to get them to like me, so I was included. That's normal. And when I pleased them, the attention felt awesome. Can you imagine when that attention is about sexual abuse? Now, even when she talked to her sisters about it, as adults, her sisters have stayed in denial and blame And that's so wrong. But this often happens when and if you want to confront your perpetrator. And so if you ever decide to do this, you have to be ready for that blame. And then she says, I was seven and I was raped by a male family friend. The deceitfulness and secrecy of what was happening in the family was so deep by then in her very being that someone else being hurtful wasn't much to think about. I hear this all the time. So sadly, the cycle can go on and on. And as we said, when the past victim treats herself like a sexual object, then it can happen a lot. And then the last thing I bolded was, I feel ashamed like someone should have stopped it. Someone should have stopped it. Not you, listener, not you. Someone should have stopped it. I do want to point out that the classic book for this kind of shame and carrying this kind of shame is called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And it will be in the show notes. Thank you all for being a part of self work today. I'm so honored that you are here. And for those of you who've left ratings and reviews on Amazon for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, you do not know how much that means to me. And I can actually tell, gosh, we've gone to like 173 ratings and reviews. People are reading. They may not be buying too many of the books, but they're reading them. They're reading the ones they've bought and liking it so much. That most of my ratings are fours and fives. Please, if you are someone who needs a lot of control and you've been hiding trauma in your life, whether or not you think you're a perfectionist, I think my book may be able to help you. If you like self-work, you'll like my book. And there are over 60 exercises that can help you and guide you through this very difficult journey but also on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your ratings and reviews there. I welcome them. You are my best advertising team, all of you, and I so appreciate it. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at com, and you can subscribe at DrMargaretRutherford.com and you will get a weekly newsletter with everything that's going on with me as well as this podcast and my weekly blog post. So come subscribe at DrMargaretRutherford.com or subscribe wherever you listen to Self Work. Thank you again for being here. Take very good care. These are strange times. We're all trying to live through something we have never lived through. Please support one another. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.